Galatians 4, verse 4. I'm going to read through it once myself. And because there's only four verses, I'm going to invite you to read it out loud with me the second time. Uh, and you can read it off of the screen if you want to read out loud with me the second time. First time, I'm going to read it by myself. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now let's go back and let's read that out loud together. And as again, you can follow on the screen so we can all ring, uh, read it uh, synchronized here. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, come on folks, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Many of you in this room are born again. Maybe even most of you in this room. There was a time in your life where as a sinner, one who had fallen short of the glory of God, the holy, righteous standard, the perfection of who God is was violated by our sins, by our words, by our actions. Therefore, consequently, we are known as sinners by nature and sinners by choice. Yet when the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit us, and we knew that we were sinners before a holy God, but we simultaneously understood that this holy God had made a way that we might come out from under that label of a sinner, that we might be forgiven, that we might be pardoned, that we might be born again. We said yes to the Lord Jesus Christ in a moment of faith. We called upon his name, whatever it sounded like, there was a moment where we said, I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm lost, I know I can't save myself, but I believe that Jesus came to save sinners like me, and so I call on you, Lord, to forgive me of my sin. I believe your death has paid for my sin. I believe your resurrection is the key for my hope after my own death, and I give my life to you. That is an expression of what it means to be saved. But here's the thing that I've learned over many years, more than two decades of local church pastoral ministry. Here's what I've learned. Most Christians don't know what they got when they got him. They just don't know all that they received because in part, uh, leaders like me focused so much on, in the past, focused so much on getting people into heaven, out of their sin and into heaven. And when we achieved that mark, we said, now read your Bible, try not to sin and follow Jesus. And we didn't help them to understand what all they received when they received him. And so what's happened in the body of Christ here in the United States, particularly in the Bible Belt, um, we have a widespread church, but as one person has said in the past, yeah, it's about a thousand miles wide and a quarter inch deep. And folks, we will not have that on our resumes here at Newbridge and IHOP. We don't want to be shallow, superficial Christians. And while we 
we uh, press in for encounter, while we want to experience the presence of God, while we long, and we're going to talk about that even in this message, we long for the Lord and we want to, Him to touch us. We want to hear from Him. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and so we believe in a supernatural life characterized by the presence and power of God. Having said all of that and our longing for Him by way of experience and encounter, I do want to tell you this. We also need theology. We need the Word. Why am I yelling? It's so early, but I'm going to yell. We, we need the truth of the Word of God. Why? Because you can only celebrate Him to the degree that you know Him. And so if we're going to know if our encounters are legitimate, if we're going to know if our, our experience with God is legitimate, if, we, if we're going to know what we're listening to on the inside of our minds or through our heart or through other people, if we're going to be able to really worship Him in a more full, robust way, then we have to know what he says about himself. That's why we're committed to the word of God here. And today I want to bring you this message from Galatians 4 that is not really typically a Christmas message, and yet there's a couple of statements in there that link all that I'm going to say to the first advent of the Son of God, the coming of Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you three Christmas memories this morning. And the first one is this. We want to remember the will of the Father. We're going to talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this morning. In the beginning, we, we remember the will of the Father. Look at the beginning of verse number four, and let's, let's just stay here for a moment. When the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, Paul is writing these Christians in the churches of Galatia, and he's referencing here in a moment the birth of Jesus the appearing of the Son of God on planet Earth, and he specifies something that God actually sovereignly appointed the very moment, the time when Jesus was born. I don't want to bust your groove, but Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Don't be upset. Don't, don't go home and, you know, tear down your Christmas tree and burn your stockings. I, 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 I'm fine with the cultural celebration of Christmas. I, anything that puts Jesus somewhat in the forefront in this culture, I'm getting in on, Amen. And so I'm, I'm not against December 25th. I, I enjoy it, but the reality was is that he, he wasn't born on December 25th. But we do know that he was born at the exact moment that the Father said, now. Let me tell you about what was going on in the world when Jesus was born, because people often ask, why didn't God send the Savior right after Adam and Eve fell? Or, you know, when, when their sons got in such conflict that one murdered the other. Why didn't the Lord send the Savior before the flood? Why didn't the Lord send the Messiah before Israel had to go off into captivity to Persia and Babylon? Why, why was there 400 years of silence? Why didn't Jesus come between Malachi and Matthew's writings? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that God is sovereign, God is wise, and God knew exactly what he was doing when he said no to all those other opportunities to send the Messiah, but said yes to the, to the moment where Jesus was conceived. Let me tell you what was going on in the world at that time because Jesus, again, didn't come just to be adored in sweetness and sentimentality and the lovely little baby at a teenage mother's bosom. That's not really what the whole point is. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to glorify the Father. He came to die as the Lamb of God. He came as a substitute and a sacrifice, but he also came that after he lived and died and rose again and ascended, he came that the gospel might go to the furthest reaches of the earth. And let me tell you why that's important. Because it wasn't until this fullness of time that that could be done in a way that would advance the gospel quickly. I wrote down a couple of things 
Know this about Israel at the time when Jesus had come. Idolatry had been purged from among the Jewish people. That happened while they were sent into captivity. Israel started out as a monotheistic people. That simply means they worshiped one God. But then they started seeing things they liked in the pagan gods and the lands around them, and they started serving those gods too. And how many of you know that God is a jealous God and he won't share his glory with any other false God? And so he did, well, I'll just say it this way, for 70 years he disciplined Israel, sent them into captivity where they were broken of their idolatry. When Jesus came, Israel was once again a monotheistic people who understood as a people that there is only one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were monotheistic again. Also, places of worship and places of teaching had been erected by the establishing of synagogues. And so there was a systematic teaching venue. So the Word of God, their Old Testament Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, it was the Hebrew Bible, was complete and it could be systematically taught. And so there was a regular teaching for literally before Jesus came for over a hundred years where they're teaching, this is the coming of the Messiah. This is what it says about when he will be born. This is the things that he will accomplish. And though their understanding was clouded, there was an expectation the Messiah could come because the people were being taught that in the synagogues. The common language, by the way, not only was the fullness of time come religiously, where they were monotheistic again, they had the, old or the Hebrew Bible, it was being systematically taught about Messiah, but there was also culturally it was the fullness of times. Why? Because the Greek culture dominated the war. Alexander the Great had established the culture. The Rome was on the throne, so to speak. The culture was still Greco. It was Greek, and Greek was the common language. And so wherever you went in the known world at that time, it was highly likely that somebody would be speaking Greek. Why is that important? Because when the Great Commission was given and the gospel was sent forth, there needed to be a language where most people could understand it. And now culturally, it was the Greek language that would be the language of the people. And then you've also got the political piece, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that by military might, Rome had established peace. And so there was at least some enforced um, organizational aspects to the culture. And there was a Roman highway system that allowed people to travel and it was huge in commerce, but it would also become huge in the advance of the gospel that people could actually get to where they needed to go because of the Roman highway and byway system. Now, the Lord could have brought his son into the world at any other time, but in the fullness of time, both religiously, politically, and culturally, all these things converged, and the father said, now is the time. Now is the time to send my son. It wasn't some shrug. It wasn't something God just, so to speak, woke up one day and said, yeah, I guess today's as good as any other. But it could not have happened before he ordained, and it would not happen after he ordained. This was the moment. And so we see at the end of verse 4, in the fullness of times, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Something to remember here, and again, there's some theology that I'm making sure we don't overlook in this. Jesus came as fully God and fully man. He had eternally existed as God the Son with God the Father and God the Spirit. But when the incarnation, when the birth of Messiah was to take place, God the Son humbled himself and was born into the world as a human being. Though he had no earthly father, 
And we're going to talk about that in the next message, actually. The next message will highlight what Gabriel said to Mary. Mary's question was, okay, you're telling me I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah, but I need to let you know, Angel Gabriel, I am a virgin, and I went to Nazareth Middle School and took Biology 101. That is impossible. <laughs> and Gabriel said to her, oh, no, no, no. This isn't a natural birth, a natural conception. This is a supernatural conception. And that which is going to be formed in your womb will be miraculously implanted there. Uh, Mary, it's going to be a biological human, but he will not have a biological father because God is his father. And so the Holy Spirit birthed in Mary's womb this baby. And immediately upon conception, the life of God is me, uh, beating in her womb. It's living in her womb. And so Mary receives humanly uh, from the Lord, a human in her womb, but he's also divine. Why is that important? Because when God sent forth his son, again, remember, it wasn't just so we could have a cutesy kind of vibe around baby Jesus, that that baby is God Almighty. And though he grew in wisdom and stature with God and man, we do understand that. Uh, we do accept that. We don't always understand that. But he is full divinity in her womb. So this is important. Because as the divine son, Jesus had the nature for the acceptable sacrifice. See, he's going to give his life. But if he's, if he's a baby born from a human father and a human mother, then he's got fully human-only DNA. And human DNA, my friends, like you, like me, and like every other person except for Jesus Christ, human DNA has a dark stain on it called sin that we're sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. We received it from our greatest forefather, Adam, and every generation since then has had this element of sin. And if Jesus was born of human conception, then Jesus would have a fully, uh, only, a, uh, only a human nature. And so he would have the corruption of sin, but he wasn't. He was conceived in her womb, and as the divine son, he therefore has a perfect nature. And therefore, he can be the acceptable sacrifice 33 years later after his conception when he dies on the cross. But as the human son, let's not make him so divine that we lose fact that he's human too. Say, so Jeff, explain that. I can't, but I can believe it, and I can't accept it, and the Bible does teach it plainly. As the human son, Jesus had the nature for the appropriate substitute, because here's the deal. If Jesus is going to die for man, he has to die as man. And so, as, as in order for God to provide the sacrifice to expunge our sin and set us free, Jesus not only had to have the perfect nature of God, but he had to have the representative nature of man. So he had to be both. And that's why the Lord says, I'm sending forth my son. Now, we don't have any peek behind the curtain to what the dialogue in eternity past might have looked like in the presence of angels between God the Father and God the Son. But ultimately it was this, God the Son said, I will take upon myself a robe of human flesh. I will become one in the human experience. I will submit my divine self to the realities of the human experience. I mean, I want you to think about this. He left the throne and went into a womb. And then when he came forth from that womb, when he was on the throne, every being in heaven worshipped him and adored him, crying out, holy, 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 night and day. They gazed upon his beauty and, and could not keep silent about the radiance of the glory of the Son of God. But when he was born in Bethlehem, barely anybody noticed. 
and yet he humbled himself. And then he lived in anonymity. Nobody knew who he was. He wasn't Jesus Christ superstar for 30 years. That's an American kind of vibe. And he was, he was the, 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 the carpenter's son. He was known as Mary's boy. And there was stigma attached to Jesus because word got out that Mary was actually pregnant before the wedding day. And so all her life, she was known as the fornicator. And even when Jesus ministered, people would say, we know who our daddy is. We weren't born of fornication. So Jesus constantly had this stigma, but he lived under that. And then at age 30, he enters into a ministry where after living perfectly, always fulfilling the will of the Father, he begins to minister to people for three years, showing himself powerful and sovereign over every demon, over every sickness, over every affliction. He tore down the religious lies and exalted grace and truth. And he called out and he said, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you the rest that your religion has never given you. And then ultimately he gave his life as that sacrifice. The holy lamb of God because he's divine and never sinned. But yet he's also the son of man. Not only the son of God, but the son of man. So he's the appropriate substitute. Listen, somebody has to die for your sins. There has to be a human death for your sins. Somebody must die for our treason against God. And either I'm going to die and pay for my sin myself for all of eternity or I will trust the Son of God who is the Son of Man, who having no sin of his own took my sin upon him. And he stepped in as my substitute and took the full wrath of the Father on him. Thereby I'm free. So go a little bit further. We're still in the first verse. God help me. Look at how he assumed the identity. It's very clear here. He's born of a woman. Born under the law. You know, Jesus came and met the human race exactly where they were. He came unto his own. He first came to the Jews. He, as a Jew, as a Messiah, the Messiah to the Jews, came unto his own, but John tells us that his own did not receive him, but as many as who would receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. But he became fully human so that he could qualify as their kinsman redeemer. And he came as a Jew to offer himself as the Jewish Messiah. If Israel would have received him, he would have been inaugurated as king of kings and lord of lords and all of the messianic promises concerning his first coming could have been fulfilled there. But in all of his ways and for all of his days, Jesus lived, submitted to the Jewish law. If you're new to Christianity or new to your Bible, the Jewish law, we can, it goes by many different definitions, but we're usually talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. And some people even reduce the law down to the Ten Commandments. What we would call it is the law of Moses. And the law was God's first revelation of who he is in his character. What are, what are my ways? What is my will? And what's the nature of my character as God? Let me show you through the law. And what the law ultimately leads all reasonable people to conclude is this. He's holy and I'm not. He's perfect and I'm sinful. He's God of all gods and I am sinner among all sinners. And so when you look at the law and you recognize the demands of it, it brings you to this place where you say, there is no hope for me. If he demands this level of righteousness, then who am I? I am doomed. I am damned. And the law brings us to a place of despair. Yet the Bible says here that Jesus came born of a woman, born as a human, but born under the law. What does that mean? It means for all of his days, 
Jesus humbled himself and submitted himself to the demands of the law of God. That means he lived every single day in thought and word and deed in absolute impeccable perfection, never sinning, never making error, never falling short of the holiness of the Father. He always did those things according to the testimony of Scripture which pleased the Father. So what does that mean? It means that he fulfilled the law. It means that the righteous requirements that God places on the human race, there's only been one person to ever walk the earth who fulfilled them all of his days in every single way, and that person is the God-man, Jesus Christ. So the righteous demands of the law, by the way, and the penalties that come against those that fail to live up to that law. They have been fulfilled. Jesus was born under the law and fulfilled the law. And because of that, he's the sinless substitute. That means when he gave his life on the cross, he had no sin of his own to die for. Some of uh, us were raised and reared in Christianized religious atmospheres that had much more to do with keeping the law than they did with surrendering to grace. And many Christians are not living in victory today because they live under the fear of the law of God coming down on them. And they don't understand, no, the penalties of the law are not that God gives you a bad week. The penalties of the law is death. And Jesus took that death Therefore, I don't wake up every day and thumb through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy thinking, how, how, what part of the law must I keep today? Because the Bible says if you offend in one point, you're guilty of, of disobeying it all. So it's an all or nothing thing, and hallelujah, Jesus said, I'll take it all. And he fulfilled it all. And so, therefore, he assumed the identity. And he said, I will fully and perfectly represent mankind. This is the will of the Father. The will of the Father was not to stand looking over the edge of heaven, scowling at you, demanding you live up to everything that he said in the law. That's not the will of the Father. His mercies are new every morning. By the way, that's a good word for some of you who had a bad night last night or a bad week last week. His mercies are new every morning. So we wake up and we say, God, I am well aware that I'm not Jesus that I haven't lived as he lived, I haven't walked as he walked, but Lord, you told me when I put my faith in him that I am now in him, and I am accepted in him, and I am complete in him. And Lord, rather than living in fear, trying to keep all of the mandates of the law, Lord, I say, I confess, I can't keep them all, but because you have paid the price, Jesus, I want to live not out of legal obligation and slavish fear, but I want to live out of a joyful adoration that what you did, you did for me. So I will not try to live faithfully because I'm afraid of what happens if I don't. I want to live faithfully because I know it pleases you. That's what God the Father wants. That's his will. So we go a little bit further and we remember the second thing. We remember the work of the Son. Why did he come as a man born unto woman and born under the law? Well, it's very clear in verse number five. In order to redeem those who were under the law. You see, it speaks not only of the Jewish people, but it speaks that in one sense, all of us are under the law because the law is the, is the publicized expression. It's God's revelation of who he is, how he is, and what he demands. 
And so we are all under the law in the sense of that is the measure of God's standard. But let me read to you from Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. I don't know if these verses are, are included in the notes on the screen, so listen carefully. Romans 8, 3 and 4 helps us to understand what it means to be redeemed from being under the law. It says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, what the law could not do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Again, Paul is hitting this, that the Father's will was not that we operate under the guilt and fear of the righteous requirements of the law, but when we surrender to Jesus, the law is meant to bring you to a recognition that you need Jesus, but it's not to usher you into eternal life. Why? Not because the law is not good, but we're not good, and we can't keep the law. We've already proven that. And so Jesus came to redeem all of those that were under the law. Why? The second part of it. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Now I want to speak to my sisters here for a minute. Because gender is like a hypersensitive topic in our culture. And we do this regularly in order to make sure that we are not guilty in certain ways of communicating that we make sure that we, we talk about sons and daughters of God. But right here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna land hard on this word sons because it has nothing to do with gender, has everything to do with your position in the kingdom. Um, it would be like me saying to the men, hey guys, you're the bride of Christ. Dudes don't like that. They're like, eh, different metaphor, please. No, you're the bride of Christ. I heard Billy say, that's right, I'm his woman. <laughs> and ladies, you're a son. The firstborn son is known as the heir. Jesus is the only begotten, but we come into the family by faith in Christ and we are immediately given the position through adoption with all of the rights of those who were naturally born to the father and that would be only one, that would be Jesus Christ. And we step into sonship. So whether you're male or female, you are an heir and what Paul is trying to communicate here is that because Jesus came at the appointed time, and because of how he lived to please the Father, and because he laid down his life as a sacrifice and a substitute on your behalf, and now the law has been removed off of you, and the penalty of the law no longer hangs of you. Some of you need this Christmas to come out of that sense of perpetual guilt and shame. You need to welcome the Holy Spirit. Don't resist the work of the Holy Ghost. Come out of that sense of perpetual guilt and shame. If you live under the cloud of guilt and shame saying, I am what my worst deed says I am, then you're going to continue going back to that worst deed, and it's going to be identifying who you are. Come out from that and recognize that no, if you're in Christ, you're a son of God. You are accepted. You are complete. You are an heir of God through Jesus Christ. That is what the work of the son is all about. He says that we were redeemed from under the law in verse 5. And that redemption is a word that indicates that we are set free from slavery. Every person outside of Christ, no matter what it looks like on the outside, every person outside of Christ is shackled to their sin. That's God's perspective. We sometimes like to give ourselves or others a free pass because we don't, their chains are well hidden. And we don't hear the rattle of them. We say, well, she's, she's great. She doesn't have a sin nature. I don't think she needs grace. Now, I want to tell you, she needs grace. 
She has a sin nature, and she may have learned how to hide her chains or to cushion them so they don't clink and rattle so that people notice, but she's chained if she's not in Christ. Sometimes we pretty up our chains with religious baggage, and we put cushions on our crosses, and we make our convenient Christianity, and we we fail to, to acknowledge the fact that the only reason we're no longer slaves is because Jesus Christ redeemed us. It's a word that literally means to buy back. In in Paul's day, in the Roman slave markets, that people with money would go, and by the way, massive parts of the Roman population were in some form of slavery. Uh, Slavery was rampant through the Roman Empire. And so the buying and exchanging of people and their services, whether it be a permanent thing or for a time period, it was very common. And so they would have these slave auctions and you'd go in the Roman Empire and you would see somebody that you want to buy and they were owned by somebody else. And the slave has no choice. The slave's gonna be owned by somebody. And so in Paul's day, somebody would come and say, I'll pay the redemption price. I wanna buy this one. And that's the picture that Jesus is giving here. But here's what's amazing. We are redeemed. The price has been paid. If you ever wonder if you have any identity or any value, um, I I just want to to tell you this. I want to say it carefully so as not to build false pride or arrogance. But if you ever want to know what a value God assigns on you, go to the cross and stare at it. Stare at the man on the cross. Behold the man. Because that is the value that God the Father placed on you, and that is the value that Jesus the Son confirmed, saying, I will pay this price for him. I will pay this price for her. He paid the slave price. But here's what's amazing. Normally in the Roman day, if you redeemed a slave and you bought that slave, you would take it back and it would now be your slave. And that slave would do whatever that master tells, and most of the time it wasn't for the slave's well-being and interest, but not so with Jesus. When Jesus pays the redemption price, he says, now you're free. You're free. In the Old Testament, there was a, um, a bit of an obscure law that when a Jewish person wanted to set their servant, their bond slave, free, and they did so, if that slave knew that this was the household he belonged in, he could bore his ear through. He would bore a hole in his ear, and that would be signifying, I know you've set me free, but I love you, I'm loved by you, I want to stay a part of this house. And that's what we did when we came to Jesus. Jesus set us free, and we said, free, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. We don't want to be free from you. We want to be free in you. And so redemption sets us free from slavery and the demands and the penalties of the law, but adoption welcomes us as sons with all of the privileges, all of the rights, all of the riches, which is what I'm going to finish up with, afforded to mature sons in the, in the Greco-Roman family. The eldest son was the firstborn and had the large share. Jesus is that firstborn, but we have been blessed, according to Ephesians 1, with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in him. Literally, it's not a stretch to say this, that Jesus looks at us and says, what is mine is yours. It is the Father's good pleasure. Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so the other thing we need to awaken to as the new year approaches is to stop living before the Father as slaves and start recognizing that we are sons. That's not to breed arrogance in us. We can't bring God much glory if we're operating as slaves. 
We certainly won't worship him like we can if we're operating as slaves. But if that relational component ever gets cemented in your spirit and you recognize, I'm not a slave trying to keep the the angry slave master at bay and get occasional word of affirmation. I'm a son. I'm beloved. I'm accepted. I'm complete. I'm in this family. My papa, my abba loves me and died so that I might be able to have that sonship. It'll, It'll revolutionize the way we think, friends. So thirdly, the third Christmas memory. Remember the witness of the Spirit. Oh, we need the Holy Spirit. I'm going to keep you five minutes long. If you've got to leave, you're not going to offend me. The clock says i got about six minutes. I'm going to take about... I'm going to take a little more. We need the Holy Spirit. I love the gifts of the Spirit. I love the presence of the Holy Spirit. I love when we gather together corporately and there are moments where the room pops and you feel like you're not only in the presence of the Holy Spirit, but angels have been loosed and heaven's atmosphere starts to be breathed in. And we need that. But friends, we don't just need the Holy Spirit to get our jam on on Sundays. We need the Holy Spirit to convince us of who we are and who he is. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us what the Word of God says. We need the Holy Spirit as the comforter, yes, but we need Him as the guide and the teacher, the convictor of our hearts. He is God in us and God among us, and there are moments in my Christian journey where I am afraid that those of us that ascribe to the charismatic aspects of the kingdom of God, I feel like we are, at times, we're borderline irreverent with how we treat the Holy Spirit. And I want to remind us all that he is God. He's not a a whammy from God. He's God. He is the Holy Spirit. And we need him. And I think in these days, we, we need to listen to what he's saying. And that means it's incumbent upon us to get still and very quiet. We we don't make a whole lot of room. For stillness and quietness anymore. One of the reasons that I love being in our prayer room is because it affords me an opportunity to push back from a lot of the noise of the world and, and just enter into a state of listening. Can I let you in on a secret? I don't do most of my praying in the prayer room. I do most of my listening there. When I want to communicate with the Lord verbally, I need it. I need to be by myself unless I'm interceding on a team or with people or over people, but when it's just me and Jesus' time, I, I just need quiet and solitude so that I hear what I'm saying to him. And I pray with my understanding, and there are times where I pray in the Spirit, and either way, I just want him to, I, I want to be able to know that what I'm communicating is being released from a heart that is thinking about what I'm saying to him. And in the prayer room, I don't know what it is over there. If you don't go over there, I just tell you, you should, not because of some legalistic demand, but for the benefit of your soul, to tend to your own heart. And yes, I'm well aware you can do that at home, you can do that in your vehicle, you can do it in a million places, but as one whose life was completely overhauled in four months of broken solitude in the prayer room back in 2013, I'm telling you, God sews up wounded hearts in the prayer room. We need to hear what the Spirit says, and let's look at what he says in these remaining verses. He's giving a witness. 
And this, in part, is a, a family witness. It, he says this, because you are sons. If you're saved in here, I w- just want to remind all of us that we are spiritual siblings for all of eternity. We're going to be together forever. Some of y'all don't like each other. I used to tell people, it was bad theology, but it was fun to say. It's like, you better get it right with that person or God's going to put you right next door to them in your mansion and their mansion when you get to glory. All joking aside, we're, we're sons. We're sons of the Most High God that carries royalty. It carries dignity. It carries identity and purpose. And as a son of God, I don't want to act like a son of earth in the sense of finding my purpose, my mission, my identity, my pleasures rooted in earthless, earthly things. How many of you have come to that place? You don't have to raise your hand or shout, but how many of you have come to that place where the Lord has ruined you for the world? It's like, no matter, I, I like stuff. Listen, the Bible says that God gives us all things richly to enjoy. I'm not one of those that's just, ah, you know, raging against all things horizontal. I, what I am saying is that none of those horizontal things can fill up that vertical spot in your heart. Some of you can just keep bouncing from relationship to relationship because you think that he or she's going to be, you're finally going to find the one. I, let me prophesy. You'll be 50, and if you keep doing that, you still won't have that empty place satisfied. Others of you are trying to find it in ministry, and so you just do more, do more, do more, do more. Got to do more, got to do more, do more. And all you are is tired. That's it. And then there's, there's so many other ways, whether it be money or pleasure. Listen, none of it works. When we use those things in the right way as tools to glorify God, then we can experience satisfaction. But when we make those things into the place of what needs to satisfy us as God, whew, we're sons, we're, we're made for better. Paul said to one group of believers, I'm persuaded better things of you. He reassures us. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, this is the adoption cry. It is an amazing statement, one that will offend the religious spirit. Abba, Father, I don't care how you want to try to frame it and do hermeneutic gymnastics, Jesus spoke to God with his own tongue and taught us to do it with this relational sense of Abba, an Aramaic word that the best probable translation in the English would be Papa, Daddy, And Jesus, with no irreverence whatsoever, not lowering or diminishing the glory of God because he above all knew who God was, he says, now you are sons and the curtain has been torn and so you don't enter into the presence of God as the high and holy dignitary whom you must not offend. You enter into his presence with all that you are and you say, Papa, Abba, Daddy, Father. It's an unhealthy thing if a small child is afraid of its father. And yet so many people recognize that in the natural and yet in the church. A lot of Christians who are 30, 40, 50 years old live with this idea of God as being the father that his hair trigger temper is only one infraction away from being poured out on us. And that's, that's a counterfeit God. That's not the God of the Bible. This adoption thing is expanded. Let me give you from Romans 8 verses 14 through 17. We're talking about this Abba Father cry, the spirit of adoption. All who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He's telling it to the church at Rome too. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. There's the deepest longing of the Christian's heart is proximity with the Father. No matter how close you are, matter of fact, the people that are closest to the Lord in this room, and we'll listen later, those of you that are the closest are likely the ones that long for more closeness more than anybody. Because the closer you get to him, the closer you want to be. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you is yearning through your mind and yearning through your emotions and yearning through your will to be close in proximity to the Father. That's why we're grieved when we sin. That's why we don't enjoy sin anymore. If you still enjoy your sin, you're lost. You're, You're absolutely lost. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. And every believer, when, when they, he or she sins, they're grieved in their spirit because they're grieving the Holy Spirit. And the person that has prayed the prayer and been baptized in the water, no matter what you've experienced, if you can sin with no compunction, nothing in you shifts, no grievance, no, no dagger, I promise you, you're, you're, you need to be saved. You're still in your sins. And you can be saved, which is the gloriously good news. And when you are saved, the Holy Spirit will be yearning through your spirit. I just want closeness to my Father. I want to know Him. I want to know that I'm known by Him. I want to love Him. I want to love what He loves. And it's that cry of, Abba, Father. And then the last verse, the witness of the Spirit testifies of our family that we're sons. He he testifies in assurance that He cries out, Abba, Father, and because we know we're longing for the Lord, we know that that's the Spirit in us, and it assures our heart that we have Him, we're saved. But it's a gracious testimony. So in the words that Jeremy Riddle took and put to a song that we've all loved, he says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. You are no longer a slave, but a son. We're no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. We are the sons of God. Can I speak boldly? Thank you, Hannah. If you want to begin playing, go ahead. I just want to speak boldly here. That you, you need to come out of your fear. There's a holy and a healthy fear of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the slavish, recoiling fear that people who don't understand yet the heart of the Father they live with, and is it any wonder they don't want to come to church? Is it any wonder they don't want to read their Bible? Is it any wonder that they have no interest in things of God? They're afraid of Him. Who wants to be in the presence of an unpredictable monster? But that's not God. Yes, He's high and holy, and He is almighty and powerful. And I want to be clear on this. His wrath will be poured out in its fullness against sin and all that is outside of his glory. That day is going to come. But we are not appointed under wrath. We have escaped the wrath through the grace and the mercy and the compassion. The same high and holy, almighty God who will pour his wrath out went to you when you were a slave to that which his wrath is going to fall on. And he said, my wrath's going to come, but I love you. And I'm buying you out of that thing that my wrath will eventually fall upon. 
And you, my child, are no longer a slave. That's not who you are. You're not a slave to your addictions. You're not a slave to your impulses. You're not a slave to your temperament, your personality, your history, your past. You're not a slave to the words that have been spoken over you. You're not a slave to your limitations. You're just not a slave. But you're a son. And if a son, verse 7 says, then an heir through God. You see, when I said earlier that a lot of people don't know what they got when they got him, this is where I was aiming. You're an heir. He didn't just purchase a one-way ticket to heaven for you that you can't really enjoy until you actually land. That's not the gospel. It's that you're a son right now, and because you're a son, you're an heir. And when we think of what it means to be an heir, that's just a word that says you have an inheritance. Will you say that with me? If you don't, I'm never going to shut up, so you're going to say it with me. Say this. I have an inheritance in Christ. Say that. Say it again. Come on, more. One more time, please. Believe it. Believe it. So when I study out through Scripture, I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray. Matter of fact, stand to your feet if you're physically able, and we'll dismiss in a moment. When I study what the Bible says about the riches, this is just the New Testament. These are phrases that are in our Bible that are part of our inheritance as believers, as sons of God. We have the riches of his kindness, the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, the riches of his inheritance, the riches of his goodness, the riches of his wisdom, the riches of the gospel, the riches of full assurance, all the riches of God in Christ, we have them. And some of them are specifically listed as being the love of God, salvation from God, the power of God, protection from God, the mercy of God, the promises of God, provision from God, victory in God, stability from God, the wisdom of God, hope from God, discernment from God, boldness in God, courage in God, compassion from God, purpose from God, expectation for the second coming. That is a glorious riches from your eternal inheritance. And if we'll just get our spirits wrapped around those truths, we'll walk out of here today and live into the coming days, not as slaves, not as paupers, not as arrogance, not with anything to lose and nothing to prove. We'll know who we are and we're no longer slaves. Therefore, we stand in who he says we are. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Friend, I believe if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, your heart has been touched this morning as the gospel has been presented. I have nothing more than I can say, but I do have one thing I can ask. Will you say yes to Jesus Christ by faith this morning? Will you surrender your life to him, all of it? Will you bring all of the good, all of the bad, all of the nasty? Will you bring it and trust him with it? Bring your sin. That's the only thing you add to the equation of your salvation. Don't bring a promise. Don't bring a I'll meet you halfway pledge. Come bankrupt. Come and eat. Come and dine at the table of God. Say, Jeff, what do I do to be saved? You surrender. You don't need a abracadabra repeated prayer from a preacher. You know your heart. Release your life to him and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And when you do so, understand this. You're his, and that's a really good thing. You're not your own anymore. 
you are not your own. No surrender, no salvation. Full surrender, full salvation. Bring your weak surrender. Everything you know about you, lay it before everything you know about him and say, I trust you, Jesus. Here's my life. So, Father, take these, these words on this early Christmas season message and awaken us to who you've called us to be. Let 2020 be the year where we never again take one step in slavehood, but in sonship. In Christ's name, amen.